Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hello, this is Perry Marshall, and I'm here with Ted Davis. Um, Ted and I are going to be talking today about the war between science and religion, or maybe you could say the alleged war. And um, I've met Ted um, several occasions at the American Scientific Affiliation Conference, where he's given numerous talks, and I've always found his talks to be riveting. Um, he, he talks with, with precision and passion about uh, the, the history of science in particular, and uh, he's a professor of the history of science at Messiah College. Um, he's most famous for being an expert on Robert Boyle, who's a chemist from a very long time ago. Um, and he's also published lots of stuff on the history of Christianity and science. Um, he's got a study of modern Jonah stories that was on two BBC radio programs. Um, he's also... Um, uh, working on a book about Christianity and the scientific revolution that's going to be published for a popular audience. And he kind of straddles the world between um, presenting things for a general audience, but also getting the respect of his peers in academia. So, Ted, I'm really happy to be talking to you about this. Well, thanks very much for your interest in these things, Perry. They're important matters that you deal with on your podcast. Well, so... Um, let's, let's just get right into it. Um, I've heard you give a couple of different talks about, you know, this war between science and religion, and clearly there's still one going on. Okay. No question about it. So, um, I'm just wondering, um, if you could tell us, you know, how, how this got started and maybe, um, you know, what's one or two urban legends that are a result of the conflict thesis that, well, frankly, just aren't true? Well, let me contextualize my answer a little bit by saying that when you ask an historian about the conflict thesis, you already referred to that idea. We mean something quite specific by that. Um, we mean a claim about the history of science and religion especially in the West, we mean about the claim about the history of science and Christianity. And that claim basically is that there has always been an ongoing, inevitable conflict between science and Christian beliefs. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the essence of it. Uh, now, that, that conflict thesis can take multiple forms, especially in the modern world, for example. It can take a very hard form uh, of a type of uh, claim made by people like, say, Richard Dawkins or Carl Sagan or Jerry Coyne, the idea that this conflict is, is with religion of all types and not simply between Christianity and science, but all types of religion, uh, traditional and otherwise, and that religion for them is not a good thing. So in the case of Carl Sagan, for example, he thought religion was 
form of superstition. And science was a candle in the darkness to put out that superstition. Mm -hmm. Likewise, Richard Dawkins thinks that religion is a virus that science can help eradicate. So that's not the kind of claim that most historians deal with. Historians deal with a more typically a more limited claim uh, about progressive ideas and backward ideas historically. Mm. And science would line up on the progressive side and religion, um, particularly dogmatic religion, on the back on the backward side. When I say dogmatic religion, that is a term that is often used by proponents of this conflict thesis in the mid 19th century and late 19th century. <clears throat> it derives, you know, dogmatic just derives from the Christian book. The, the the word dogma, which really means teaching. And dog, the word dogma is often used in a religious context to refer to doctrine. Doctrine right. dogma are rooted in the same terms historically. So that's the essence of this conflict claim as a historian deals with it. It's this claim there's an ongoing inevitable conflict. It's always been here. And it will probably always be with us as long as us Christians and others try to make factual claims uh, about empirical reality rooted in their faith. It's in that form, the historical form, it's not a claim about values. It's not a claim that Christian values are worthless, Christian morality is worthless, and mm. we need to get past that. In fact, most practitioners of this idea historically have, have had a pretty pretty fond respect for a lot of um, so-called Judeo-Christian values, mm. uh, and they didn't, think, they didn't think that Christian morality was a bad idea. They, they didn't think that uh, we wanted to get past the legacy of Christianity in that regard. In fact, they would have identified the essence of Christianity as good moral teaching. Mm. So, you know, someone like someone, for example, like Thomas Jefferson um, thought that Christianity was a very positive force in the world, but he didn't think so much of what uh, specific Christian teachings, um, such as the resurrection of Jesus, which he didn't believe, or sin and redemption with Christ saving us from sins. He didn't believe that. But he did think Christ was a great moral teacher and that the legacy of Christianity in that regard was crucial. Um, he bought into that. In fact, he would have thought of himself as a Christian in that respect. Mm. So that sort of very liberal view of, of Christian religion um, is often associated with this historical claim about Christian dogma never have had anything good to do with the development of science and always holding it back. So that's what we mean by this concept. Right? Now, you asked for a couple specifics, right, about that. Well, it's, it's hard to know where to begin because there are so many of these urban legends out there. The most commonly encountered urban legend, even to, still today, I think, is probably the claim that medieval Christians believe the world is flat. And, and that this is just part of what they thought, and they thought this for biblical reasons, and they were just plain stupid, or or both, for not believing not believing otherwise. I mean, yeah. and, and a, a famous example of this is from Thomas Jefferson himself, and um, Jefferson himself actually alluded to this idea in his um, in his uh, lectures on religion and his book on uh, on Virginia. Um, he, uh, his, his section on religion in his book on Virginia, where he attributed to Galileo, he basically says Galileo gets in conflict with the church because he thinks that the, that the, that the, that the earth is as flat as a trencher. A trencher was a, a little flat hat a, or bowl, me, a, little, a, little, a little flat plate. Um, uh, let's see, I, you know, maybe, maybe something, something like that. There you have <laughs> a trencher. 
and the earth is as flat as a trencher and this is why Galileo gets in trouble. Now, of course, that's, that's, that's just totally ridiculous historically. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, an alleged belief in a flat earth has nothing whatsoever to do with the trouble that Galileo gets involved with. Um, that has to do with whether the earth moves or not. It's got nothing to do with the earth's shape. But the fact that a person of the um, great stature, um, both as a, not just as a human being and a historically important human being, but as a great learned man of his day, a Renaissance man of his day, that Thomas Jefferson believed that drill, that indicates the appeal that that particular idea has had to many over the ages. As you probably know, the teaching that Columbus proved the earth is round against opponents who were insisting that it's flat was in social studies textbooks right through the 20th century, even though historians all knew this was garbage. Wow. Um, the, leading, the leading American biographer of Columbus, in fact, uh, in the last century was a, uh, a great uh, historian of primarily naval history at Harvard. He was a former naval officer uh, during World War II. His name was Samuel Elliott Morrison. Morrison wrote a uh, great biography of Columbus um, called Admiral of the Ocean Sea. The Ocean Sea was a reference to the Atlantic Ocean, west of Spain and Portugal. That was the Great Ocean Sea. And Columbus gets himself called, entitled Admiral of the Ocean Sea in his negotiations with uh, um, the Spanish government. But the the uh, claim is is uh, he 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 basically says that this this is bogus. This has no uh, validity whatsoever historically. And this book is written not too long after World War II by this eminent historian. And yet we still find those ideas, as I say, in American school textbooks right through the 20th century. I remember my own kids bringing home middle school social studies books with this. This would have had to have been in the uh, 1990s that had that story wow. prominently on display. Just, you know, ridiculous that this is the case. It wasn't like this was in one sentence somewhere. This was developed as a point in the course of that book. So that, that kind of story is perhaps the most well-known of these examples of a so-called warfare. Now, uh, what's the truth about what people believed about the earth? Well, then? Uh, the truth is very easy to obtain. If we mean what did educated people believe? Because that we know, um, you know, historians have to have evidence to make claims. We don't really have much evidence pertaining to the beliefs of the ordinary person on this issue in the Middle Ages. Hmm. Now, could there have been some ignorant sailors who thought the earth is not round? Possibly. There's people today who don't think the earth is round. So, but these aren't the people. These aren't the people navigating the ships. These aren't the people making decisions about whether or not to fund a given voyage. <laughs> the people who are making those decisions are educated people. And if you were a university, when I say educated, let me just spell out an example of what that could mean. Um, in the Middle Ages, universities were closed to women. Um, women could be educated by tutors in their homes, and that did happen typically for wealthier women or noble and noble women. Um, but universities were for men. But the men who attended universities in many cases would have taken a course on astronomy as an undergraduate. It was a standard topic. Most medieval universities taught astronomy to many, many students. And if they took astronomy, they would have had as a textbook one of a few standard textbooks. They still survive today. 
they they were prior to prior to Gutenberg and printing, they would have been manuscript source. They would have been handwritten textbooks. But after Gutenberg, they get published and they get published in large quantities. And these these, these exist in libraries today. In fact, just uh, just a few months ago, I was using a bunch of those uh, textbooks from the 15th and 16th centuries at uh, a rare book library at the University of Oklahoma, where they have a lot of these. The most commonly used one uh, was by a medieval monk um, by the name of John of Sacrobosco or John of Hollywood. He was a professor of mathematics at Paris, which was one of the most eminent universities in the world at the time. He wrote this textbook, I say, in the 13th century. So this is before Gutenberg. But the book stayed in use in universities into the 17th century. It has a 400-year shelf life, which is incredible. You know, wow. so, so this textbook is among the most influential, if not the most influential textbook in the whole history of science. And Sacrobosco starts out in his book by talking about the shape of the earth. And the shape of the earth is unambiguously round. Likewise, the ocean, the sea is round. Uh, I won't go into why he separates a discussion of the earth from the sea. Um, but the bottom line is that no medieval university student is going to come away from that course with the impression that the earth is anything other than a sphere. And, and wow. they had a very good idea about how big it was. They've known the size of the earth approximately since the third century BC. Size has been well known. And that number never disappears in Western discourse. University educated people know what these numbers are. So the shape and size of the earth is just a well-known fact throughout the entire period of Christian history. And it's not the case that Universities in the Middle Ages, which are in many cases chartered by clerical officials, are teaching something different. They're teaching the standard astronomical knowledge. And as I mentioned, that book is written by a monk, John of Sacrobosco. So this is just standard knowledge for the Middle Ages, is that the Earth is round and it's pretty big. In Columbus's case, he's going by many, um, a, an inferior tradition uh, from, from the High Middle Ages, that the Earth is not as big as it had been thought to have been, to have been in the standard texts, mm. and that Asia is a lot larger than the standard texts teach. And if you put those two errors together and you push them in both directions to minimize the size of the earth itself and maximize the size of Asia, you can fudge things in such a way that it appears to Columbus and people who are listening to him that it might be as, uh, just 3,000 miles due west from Spain to Japan. When the real oh. realistic number is, you know, several times that. Um, and his critics knew full well that Columbus was bonkers. And that, that this is <laughs> voyage, the voyage due Western Spain to Japan is not. These guys are not going to survive. They'll, they'll never come home. They'll run out of food and water before they ever hit land. Um, now, his critics were absolutely right, except for the fact that there was a continent to the West of Spain that nobody wow. knew about, not even Columbus. And wow. it's not even clear that Columbus ever fully understood what he had run into. Um, that took uh, others shortly, shortly after his voyages, people like Amerigo Vespucci, who figure out there really is a massive continent um, that hmm. in, in the middle between, between Western Europe and Asia. Um, you know, that, that's, that becomes state-of-the-art knowledge of the early 16th century, the century <laughs> right after Columbus. So these, the, the stories are just preposterous, the stories about Columbus and a flat earth. And yet we find them in these modern textbooks. And because his opponents uh, on these ideas include um, university professors from the University of Salamanca, which was a, um, 
uh, the oldest university in Spain and associated um, with the church. These people who are allegedly uh, defend, uh, opposing Columbus's voyage because they know the earth is flat. That, that type of legend has that sure science versus faith component that just, that just did not exist in that way at that time. Nobody raised the objection about the flat earth. It just didn't happen. Wow. Okay, so that's, a, that's the most prominent example. There are many others, and I could, that I could give you if you want one or two others. We can do that. Well, how about yeah, one or two more? Um, well, the the most famous book promulgating these stories in the late nineteenth century, these ideas of a warfare, is one I have right here, and I'll show you the cover of it. How clearly you can. The history of the warfare of science with theology in Christendom by Andrew D. White. There you go. Andrew White was the first president of Cornell University, and he was a great proponent of this warfare idea. He was himself, uh, he would have considered himself to be a kind of liberal Christian, um, even though he didn't believe in the divinity of Jesus or the resurrection. Um, he did believe in uh, the moral goodness of Christian teaching, and he wanted to see that uh, continue in, in what he would have seen as modern America in his day. He just wanted to take the doctrinal element and bury it. Um, but White um, has, in, in, in his book, in a section on astronomy, on the heliocentric theory, he has an infamous paragraph in which he commits two enormous mistakes historically that don't really get caught by many later commentators. Uh, the most famous of these two involves John Calvin. Um, so here is what he, here's what he says. I'll, I'll read just a bit of that page. Um, the context here is discussing condemnations of Copernicus, the idea that the earth goes around the sun, by reformers. And um, he says this, Calvin took the lead in his commentary on Genesis by condemning all who asserted that the earth is not at the center of the universe. He clinched the matter by the usual reference to the first verse of the 93rd Psalm and asked, quote, who will venture to place the authority of Copernicus above that of the Holy Spirit, end quote. Now, it's abundantly clear to a reader of White, A, that Calvin wrote that, and B, that he wrote it in his commentary on Genesis. Um, I mean, you can't draw another conclusion if you read that paragraph. If White is correct, then those two, fa those two statements are facts, the way White puts them in that paragraph. Well, in fact, Copernicus's name is found nowhere in any of Calvin's writings, hmm. and there's no such statement anywhere in Calvin, let alone in his commentary on Genesis. Um, Calvin, like every other, almost every other 16th century learned person, doesn't believe the earth goes around the sun. Um, the number of people who believe that in the 16th century can be numbered on three hands, uh, and Calvin is not among them. Um, Neither would I have been had I been alive then. In fact, the greatest observational astronomer in history, Tycho Brahe, who lives after Copernicus, doesn't believe the Copernican system either. He thinks that the evidence doesn't support it. Mm. So, you know, uh, in the 16th century, this is still very much of a wild hypothesis, the idea that the Earth is in motion. We know, we know for sure Calvin believed that the Earth is in the center of the world and motionless. That's, that's all true. But Calvin never said this. He never, he never commented specifically on Copernicus by name and almost certainly also never commented on Copernicus by implication either. 
Um, and so this is just made up out of whole cloth, the idea that Calvin said this. White did himself apparently didn't make it up. He, he took it out of another 19th century book where this is found. But the point is that here is White, who was a leading historian. He was, in fact, the first president of the American Historical Association, as well as the first president of Cornell. That the, a historian of this stature would simply take a statement of that type uttered by one of the most important people of the 16th century mm. and put it in his book without checking the original sources. That to me is bordering on historical malpractice that he did something like that. I mean, this is not a minor statement about a minor topic by a minor person, the kind right. of thing that historians would normally just accept from another historian's authority. This is a, a, an inflammatory statement in the context of White's book by one of the greatest his theologians in history, and certainly the greatest theologian of the 16th century. And if he's going to use this to represent Calvin's opinion, he darn well better check that source and source it properly. And he doesn't. Wow. You know, he, he, does, this, he does this type of thing in his book quite often, where he'll give an idea that is improperly sourced and as if it were an established fact, or he'll take some properly sourced facts and distort what they meant in historical context. This is routine business, and yet this book, this book determines scholarly opinion about Christianity and science for, for nearly a century after it's published in 1896. So wow. that's a second example. In fact, to, give, to, to bring that one almost uh, full circle, that exact quotation, allegedly from Calvin, is given as if it were, again, authoritatively correct in the most one of the most famous books ever published in the history of science in modern times, Thomas Kuhn's Copernican Revolution. Mm. Thomas, Kuhn, Thomas Kuhn is undoubtedly the most famous historian of science who's ever lived. And he has the two all-time great bestsellers in the history of science, scholarly books. One of them, the first of the two is called The Copernican Revolution. And it was published in the 1950s. It was used as a textbook in numerous universities and colleges. I had it myself as an undergraduate student in college. It was a textbook in a course I had. And he just, you know, he relies on white uh, for that particular section of the book where that quotation appears. And I, I can't blame Kuhn for not going back to the 16th century and looking at the original source. That was a secondary interest of his, was this religion science thing. Um, I certainly blame white. The fact that Kuhn and many others have relied on White as an authoritative source ever since is part of the big problem about the conflict thesis. So you have the legend, but then you also have the propensity of people to exaggerate the legend, and you also have the propensity of people to believe the legend, right? So yes, right. there's clearly there's a feedback loop here. So what is that about? Why is this such an appealing story? I think it's appealing to many because it is consistent with biases that they bring to the conversation. Now, now that is not always true. We could talk, if you want, about examples of people whose viewpoints are changed by reading White. They don't mm. necessarily want to believe White when they first read it, but they get mm. influenced by this. They become persuaded that White is right. But there are people also who are already inclined to believe this type of thing, inclined to believe that religion really is just bad ideas uh, by ignorant people. And science is the truth, the big T. And so science is a progressive force that's driving out ignorance and superstition, including all types of religion. And if people believe that before they come to Andrew Dixon White, 
they're even more likely to believe it when they leave. They'll think that the history of science and Christianity just supports what they already knew to be the truth, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that, that is certainly a factor, a prior bias factor. But it's also the case that when one reads White, one doesn't have the background of a modern historian in reading White. One can easily be taken in. And one can think that this stuff is all authoritative. After all, this man was a leading historian in his day. Yes, the book is very, very heavily footnoted. It appears to be adequately sourced when it isn't, as I've indicated already. Mm. And so they're going to come away from this thinking, well, look, this stuff is true, you know, and therefore we should base our ideas today on the truth of this assumption that science and Christianity have always been in this ongoing conflict. And that really Christianity never had a good thing um, to offer to the development of science. So that, that would, that's, uh, that's the mindset that this can support. And others can draw on other sources to create uh, similar bogus pictures of the history of science and Christianity as well. And the most famous example probably today would be that of, uh, of, of doing that of creating a bogus history of this in a broad sense, not just the, the Columbus story, would be Carl Sagan in his, mm. his Cosmos, where he has that enormous section of history uh, in which basically nothing happens that's good to science, in his opinion, all the mm. way from, from the ancient world down through, the t- down until the time of Copernicus and Columbus. There's roughly a thousand years in there a blank space in the history of science, in, in Sagan's opinion. And it just happens to correspond to the time when Christianity became the dominant cultural force in Western Europe. That, that's not so, an accident, of course, for Sagan. So can you expand on that, actually? So, so Sagan, um, Sagan's espousing some sort of kind of a Dark Ages picture of history, and what's the truth? Why don't you elaborate on that? Yes, he very much so. Um, The term Dark Ages is a term that many will be familiar with. Um, At one point, it was fairly common for people uh, um, to write about uh, the Middle Ages as a Dark Age. Uh, When I say the Middle Ages, let me just give a rough chronological, really rough chronological estimate, you know, roughly 500 to 1500 people. Mm -hmm. That's the period that we're talking about. And people would refer to that as a dark age in which there was profound ignorance all across the world. Um, there's, a, there's a very small kernel of truth in that generalization. And that's one reason it was able to fly with many for a long time. The early Middle Ages, the period from after the fall of Rome, which happens in the 400s, down to about the, the uh, 12th century, down to the 1100s. <clears throat> In that period of time, Northern and Western Europe are in a period of relative cultural decline and even collapse in in relation Mm. to the ancient world. And this is because of the political collapse after the the fall of this great world empire that had Mm. dominated them since that time, you know, Mm. that that built the roads and the aqueducts that had uh, kept uh, the so-called barbarians from Germany and other places out of the empire and brought a peace, you know, the Pax Romana, a Roman peace to this part of the world. Um, and it had, had been the cultural institution. Um, when that fell apart, there was great chaos uh, and in, in, in those parts of the world, particularly in Northern and Western Europe. 
and that's when that's when this institution of feudalism becomes prominent the system in which is locally based power structures where you know the local prince will be a vassal to a higher prince further up but the control really comes at a local level and each little district has its own local ruler <clears throat> there isn't the kind of, of political continuity um, and dominance of one government that you had had in the time of Rome. So there's a, a big cultural collapse takes place. And in that vacuum, it takes a while before um, there can be really significant advances in both practical and theoretical knowledge about the world. Uh, but the context is missed. If you just refer to this as a dark ages and simply blame it on the dominant religion at the time, which is Christianity. Um, Christianity didn't really have very much to do with a cultural collapse at all. It had a lot to do, in fact, with preserving what, what was left of that culture mm. as, as mm. um, monks and, and uh, others uh, preserved ancient knowledge and did not let it disappear. Um, it's not, though, until around the 12th century um, that there's a great growth of knowledge again. Uh, that mm. 12th through the 16th centuries, that period of time, is also included in the classical picture of a dark age. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason it ever should have been um, because it was a period of great cultural flourishing in Northern and Western Europe, an advancement of knowledge, uh, primarily as um, Christian scholars began to rediscover uh, the knowledge of ancient Greece, Greek scientific tradition. Um, they began to rediscover it by encountering Arabic translations of Greek scientific works the first few centuries of that period and then later after the collapse of of, of, of Constantinople or and Byzantium after the Byzantine Empire falls to um, uh, the Ottoman Turks in the 15th century and people begin to flee uh, what is now uh, Turkey um, and come to uh, western uh, the southern parts of Europe uh, that are more west of there they come to Italy and Greece bringing rare copies of original Greek works. And so in the second phase of that period, Western scholars encounter actual Greek texts of Plato and Aristotle. Mm. They haven't seen, literally haven't seen um, in, their, in, their, in their own cultural history. They've seen translations into Latin of works that were translated into Arabic from Greek, from Greek wow. in, in the Middle East and in North Africa. That's a long story. But that does bring about a cultural awakening in Northern and Western Europe. But then the Europeans do a lot more with it, ultimately, uh, than is done by uh, scholars in other parts of the world. And we have what's called the scientific revolution, a term that's often been used. It's a term that now some historians regard as passé, but I do not. And that mm. episode takes place in early modern Europe when you begin to create what we now recognize as modern science. There's a significant component of that that involved the recovery of, of Greek science, but then the Greek science really does get reshaped and transformed to an unrecognizably different kind of, kind of uh, thinking about the world that the Greeks never went to, particularly with uh, you know, the earth moving around the sun and a much greater use of mathematics in all of the sciences and a tremendous explosion of experimental science, um, which the Greeks do fairly rarely. The Greeks observe nature a lot, but they don't really have a, a, a flourishing experimental tradition in the ancient world. It becomes much, much more um, 
at the center of the scientific enterprise with um, the early modern period in Europe. So, so what do you, what's the, the what's the agenda of the, like the, the biggest crusaders against religion? Like what's, so what's really going on with these people? I mean, there's white, there's also a guy named John Draper. Um, I mean, can you elaborate on what what these guys would like to accomplish? Well, um, in in the case, the best, the easiest one to to talk about uh, today, I think, is White, whom we've already mentioned. Um, it is true that there are there are actually quite a few others, uh, quite a few others. The man you mentioned, John William Draper, was a British-born um, uh, person who became a a chemist. He was famous, once you get to the United States, when he is a, a relatively young man, uh, he becomes famous for taking the first photograph of the moon in, mm. uh, somewhere around 1840. Um, and he, he uh, works his way up to being a professor at NYU. Um, toward the latter part of his career, he imagines himself really to be a historian of ideas um, more than a chemist. And he writes multiple books about the history of ideas in Europe including a book whose title sounds like White's. It's a history of the conflict of science and religion, or religion and science, I think is how he puts it. I think he says, history of the conflict of religion and science. And it's, it's um, a book that has a lot of overtones common with White. Um, he makes more of the flat earth piece in his book than White does. Many of the, of the modern sources of bogus history are taking them from Draper. Uh, in that case, rather than from White. He's also a vitriolic anti-Catholic. White really has more of, a, of an opposition to sort of all forms of traditional Christian belief at the, at the level of, of, of theology, at the level of theology. But Draper has a special <laughs> place in his book uh, for attacking Catholicism because of the fact that historically Catholicism in the West often gets tied with political power. And for Draper, that's that's the nemesis. It's the union of religion with political power. So he writes um, really bad things about church in his book, about the Roman Catholic Church. And another proponent of this is Edward Yalmans. Edward Yalmans was um, a publisher of periodicals in the second half of the 19th century. Very popular periodicals. In fact, one of them is called Popular Science Monthly. Um, that's sort of the scientific well, I, I shouldn't say the Scientific American mistake. The Scientific American also appears in that time. That Scientific American goes back to at least the Civil War. But it's a, it's a popular journal uh, that, that ordinary people read about science, and it preaches the gospel of progressivism, that science is the source of every good and perfect gift, um, and this is, this is the future here, is science. And we want to get throw into the past things like traditional religion. Andrew Dixon White frequently contributes to that journal. In fact, the book that I showed you earlier, the one that gets published in the 1890s and with the big red cover, that book is serialized in Yalman's Popular Science Monthly, so that one essay after another appears over the years between the 1870s and the 1890s, so that the, the audience for that book is already very large by the time it comes out, since people have been reading these ideas for a couple of decades, coming from white. Yalman's, Yalman's published a lot of other stuff in the United States that had a kind of overtone of the warfare thesis, including ideas from the famous uh, uh, Northern Irish scientist, um, John Tyndall, a very prominent scientist, Victorian era scientist. 
he believed in the progress of science in that sense. Science makes progress as religion goes backwards. Um, Thomas Huxley believed the same thing. Uh, in fact, Huxley... That was Darwin's bulldog. Yeah, Thomas Huxley is the person made famously known as Darwin's bulldog, who promotes Charles Darwin's ideas in the Victorian era. And he also takes on a warfare view of science and religion. And he is invited to give the inaugural address at Johns Hopkins University in the United States when Johns Hopkins is founded um, in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. Hopkins was founded as a research-only university at first without an undergraduate piece to it. Even today, the undergraduate piece is kind of like poor sister to the rest. Um, it's a massive graduate school and medical school. And originally, again, it was founded to be a, a, a creator of knowledge rather than a disseminator of it. Mm. Uh, as a, where graduate students would go and help famous um, scholars in their own field, scholars and scientists do their work and earn their PhD at that German-based graduate degree, German-invented degree, the PhD. And Hopkins is among the first institutions to grant it in the United States. So it's, mm. a, it's a doctoral-oriented place at first, and it's founded with this vision um, of uh, pushing this conflict of science and religion. In fact, the um, uh, pres- first president of Hopkins, Daniel Coit Gilman, was a close friend of Andrew Nixon White. I think they'd gone to Yale together as undergrads. Very interesting. Well, okay, so how do you see this fabricated conflict thesis actually becoming real like at some point it really did turn into a war even though even though the war was initially mostly made up well you're referring to perhaps the idea that um, the bible and evolution um, cannot be reconciled would that be a kind of thing sure that'd be that'd be a great example in today's world so you Mm -hmm. have on the one hand you have you have People, preachers of naturalism, like Dawkins and Coyne, um, who would be saying, look, you know, if, if, if evolution is true, Christianity is false. And, and uh, at the same time, you have people like Ken Ham uh, or the late Henry Morris saying precisely the same thing, that if evolution right. is true, then Christianity is false. And tens of millions of Americans probably believe that that if evolution is true, then Christianity is false. You would have those who like the Dawkins uh, line, and so people who are anti-religious in America who would say, you know, Dawkins is right. Evolution's true, and Christianity is false. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then many, many millions of followers of Ken Ham, probably far more followers of Ken Ham in America today than of Richard Dawkins, um, but people who believe exactly the same thing. And so that does, in, in my view, that is indeed a form of the warfare thesis. It's a different form than the one that was famous to historians. And, oh, okay. You know, because the historians were dealing with a claim that's not an inherently anti-religious claim. It's, it's a claim that, that, that Christian dogma, historically, has not been a progressive intellectual force. It's been a backward intellectual force. But that the moral traditions of Christianity and the basic goodness of Christian teaching um, are still there for those people. Uh, Andrew Dixon White in particular wants to preserve that. He really wants to keep that alive, that moral tradition, whereas Dawkins wants to get rid of Christian influence entirely. Yes. And Ken Ham wants to get rid of evolution entirely. Um, yes. He's, he sees that as a problem. So this is a, this is a different take on it. This isn't the same thing 
as the conflict thesis that historians deal with today. As we look back at the at, at proponents of that, like White, that they were seeing things, they were coming from a different place than Dawkins. And they were also coming from a different place than Ken Ham. Okay, so so when we use the term conflict thesis, we're generally talking about historians um, and and that and when we talk about warfare thesis, now we're talking about really hardcore fundamentalists on the far extremes. Uh, well, no, I would say that historians use the term warfare thesis and conflict thesis interchangeably. And oh, okay. We're thinking we're thinking of these ideas that were pushed particularly by people like White and Draper and Yalmans, this notion of a, of a, of a very progressive um, science and a very backward uh, dogmatic or theological religion. Um, the practice of everyday religion and the practice of, of, of charity and the, pra the practice of, um, of, of getting along with one's neighbor, those kinds of things were good in their mind and they were associated with religion. So religion's not bad for them. Um, but pushing dogmatic theology, that's the problem. At the end of the preface of White's book, the very last page, he has a very, very famous preface that he writes to his book, when he, which he writes in St. Petersburg, Russia, because at that point he's at the American legation in St. Petersburg. And in the next to last paragraph, he says this, he says, my conviction is that science, which he has with a capital S, Though it has evidently conquered dogmatic theology, capital D, capital T, based on biblical texts and ancient modes of thought, will go hand in hand with religion, capital R. So I'll read that sentence without interruption this time. My conviction is that science, though it has evidently conquered dogmatic theology based on biblical texts and ancient modes of thought, will go hand in hand with religion. So hmm. he thinks religion, a moral influence, is very important, very good. Science wants that, um, wants to go hand in hand with that. But we got to get rid of this dogmatic theology stuff. Hmm. Like these claims about the divinity of Jesus and that Jesus was raised from the dead and that, that um, you know, miracles are formed, performed in various points in human history. These kinds of claims have to be thrown under the bus. But, but the, 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 the teaching, the moral teaching of Jesus especially, is profound and very important for progress in a progressive age. As he goes on to say, he says, he also says, my conviction is that although theological control will continue to diminish religion as seen in the recognition of, quote, a power in the universe, not ourselves, that which makes for righteousness, unquote, and in the mm -hmm. love of God and of our neighbor will steadily grow stronger and stronger, not only in the American institutions of learning, but in the world at large. Now, when he puts that quote in his own passage there, the one I quoted this time with quotes, is taken from Matthew Arnold, a very famous poet and writer of Victorian Britain, when he says, a power in the universe, not ourselves, that makes for righteousness. That's the kind of religion that White wants to see flourish. That's the, the, um, the ethical influence of love for neighbor, the same kind of religious vision that Thomas Jefferson certainly would have endorsed a century earlier. That's good. That is religion. So religion isn't bad. It's just there's a bad kind of religion that is too dogmatic, too theological. That's what White wants to Interesting. get rid of. Interesting. That's what White wants to get rid of. So that's the kind of conflict thesis that historians are typically talking about. Although, although to be honest, this has been realized only fairly recently by historians that really that's what White's diatribe was about, was about 
replacing mm. a liberal type of, of, of broadly religious thinking, um, broadly spiritual, broadly rooted in Christianity, replacing, putting that over a more old-fashioned, backward-thinking theological view. That, that's what he wanted to do, ultimately. But he just, uh, you know, goes overboard in his book in the kinds of examples he uses to support that vision of his, the examples that are not rooted in accurate history. So religion is usually painted as the bully here. Can you talk about where science became the bully? Well, uh, I would suggest that perhaps the most well-known incident of science functioning as kind of a bully um, toward uh, people's beliefs uh, about humanity, at least, is, is the example of eugenics in the early 20th century. Eugenics was a word that was coined by Charles Gar Darwin's first cousin, Francis Galton. It really means goodly heritage. That's what it means. Mm. Um, he, him, Galton, understood this, as he saw it, to be something that could function as a substitute for traditional religion. He saw it. Mm. He didn't think this was a religiously neutral idea. Um, but the, the idea takes, as it blossoms, <clears throat> especially in the United States, where we're really the leading nation for, for pushing eugenics in the early 20th century. We're the first nation to, in, to, act, um, to, to enact legislation about, about, um, that's associated with what we call eugenics historically. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, and in fact, uh, some of the eugenic laws in Europe are, are based originally on eugenic laws from places like Indiana and uh, in the United States. Um, the, eugen the notion of eugenics is twofold. <clears throat> on the one hand, you have a positive force that you want to encourage good child rearing practices and good marriages, uh, good selection of marriage partners. So you want the well-bred to marry other well-bred people, rear a lot of well-bred children, have a lot of them and populate the world with, with intelligent, well-behaved people. <clears throat> um, and on the other hand, the negative side, which is, well, at some point, we really even have to prevent the bad heritage people from breeding. That's how it would have been seen in language. Well, which, which led them to do what? Well, led led, led um, in several states for people who were classified as imbeciles or, or um, hardcore criminals to be sterilized forcibly so that they could not pass their genes on to offspring. Ironically, what makes this possible isn't so much evolution, the idea that, that Galton shares with his cousin, Charles Darwin. There's an evolutionary component to this thinking. Of course, we could take charge of our own evolutionary destiny. But what really makes it possible in practice is Mendel's, eugenic, Mendel's genetics. Um, once Mendelian genetics is rediscovered around 1900, people start to realize that there are such things as genetic factors. And then the question comes in, well, can we maybe remove those genetic factors from the germ line? Can we prevent people who have these genetic factors from reproducing? So it's, it's that practical well. insight that ultimately enables genetics to flourish. Eugen excuse me, eugenics to flourish. It's this genetic theory of Gregor Mendel. <clears throat> Mendel's long dead at this point, you know, and this is nothing that, that, that Mendel himself ever advocates in any way, but people see his ideas, his theory about, about um, reproduction and factors in reproduction as something now that had, can be used in a practical way to strengthen the 
human um, species, as a species, we can eliminate or count, count back on the defective genetic people, and we can encourage the flourishing of those who have the goodly heritage, who have the eugenics, goodly heritage. So that, that's an idea in which uh, science really does run roughshod over human values. Um, and yet it's in America, it doesn't really go away until people realize what's happening in Germany and they shut down eugenics research in the United States. Wow. Well, so we need to wrap up here. Um, if, if we're going to end this war between science and religion, what, what, in your opinion, like what's, what's the best thing we can do going forward? I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that we ever will eliminate the idea because it, it, the notion that you can use science, which is in the modern world, the epitome of knowledge, that you can use this scientific knowledge to get rid of, religion. That's an idea that does have wide appeal in some circles. Yes, it does. And I don't think that idea is ever going to go away. I think people, I think there'll always be a segment of people who find that attractive. People who just do not like traditional religion in any form and, and want to do their best um, to eliminate it in a war of ideas. And so that, that, I don't think that's going to disappear in spite of efforts to by historians to say, well, you know, this, this historical claim of an ongoing inevitable warfare doesn't hold up historically. It's based in many cases upon false facts, if you will, uh, fake news, and, and also upon um, un, 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 um, unsupportable interpretations of, 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 of actual facts uh, in some cases. But that message is not going to really be a very popular one in some circles. At the same time, I think that there are that the fear that, in my view, motivates someone like a Ken Ham, the fear that 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 his whole world is collapsing um, if this modern science is true, that fear will also motivate people to continue to oppose uh, what I regard in many cases as genuine science um, that that has uh, for which there's a great deal of evidence. Uh, you know, things like the Big Bang theory or um, uh, common ancestry of humans and other organisms, or that the earth itself is billions of years old, and that living things have been on it for billions of years, and mm -hmm. macroscopic living things have been on it for hundreds and hundreds of millions of years before humans ever arrived. Those are ideas that are staunchly opposed by Ken Ham's group. You know, if you go through the Creation Museum in Kentucky, uh, you get just a glimpse of this. So that's a case where what I think is genuine science, although Ham regards it entirely as false science, right. genuine science really is opposed to his particular way of thinking about the world. So those ideas are at war. Uh, the genuine science is at war with Ham's understanding of what Christianity must teach. Um, so, you know, th these ideas will have wide appeal, and I, don't, I really don't think they're going to go away. Um, what the hope I would have is that is that for people who want to be who want to be a bit more thoughtful about some of these kinds of things, for people who want to who want to understand what 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 the historical landscape really did look like, and for people who want to want to find a different way forward, in which uh, their their uh, their beliefs in in Christianity or another traditional faith don't have to be thrown under the bus in order to embrace a modern scientific world. Um, people who want that. We'll find a lot of support for that amongst uh, many scientists and scholars. 
Well, you have definitely given some support. Definitely people uh, who are listening to this are probably simpatico with having a peaceful relationship between these two worlds. So thank you for sharing your immense knowledge and, um, and uh, people, people can look you up on Amazon and they can, they can find your books and you've got just take 10 seconds. Tell, tell us about the book that's coming out for a popular well, first, audience. First, first of all, I should, I should alert you to the fact that I, assuming this book is eventually finished, it won't be oh, okay. time soon. I've only just begun writing it. It's based on lectures uh, that I've been giving for to my own students and to other audiences for a long time, and I'm trying to put them into a into a kind of polished book form for people who are not experts in my field to read with understanding and appreciation. I hope, uh, but it's it's these kind of a thing. These kind of things can take a long time to do properly, and I'm a person who doesn't write quickly in any circumstances. <laughs> Okay. I, I try to do what White did not do, um, if I can sound a little self-serving on this one. I no, really, you're serving I all really, of us. I really yeah. do try to check my sources, and, and I, 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 try to, I try to quote the original sources whenever possible, um, and actually let those, people, let those sources speak for themselves, and, and, and uh, also provide lots and lots of images um, that will illustrate what people actually thought at given points in history, taken out of scientific works from the past. So the book will try to write the history of Christianity and science from before Christianity, from the Greeks in the fourth century BC, down through the period of Isaac Newton, which is, uh, Newton really stops doing science effectively by the early 18th century. And so that's a period that will kind of go from Plato to Newton but hardly in a comprehensive way, because if I tried to do it in a comprehensive way, it'd be so many volumes and so expensive, and nobody would, in, of a right mind would ever pick it up and try to read it. But, but I, I want to keep it short, um, and, but without being too simple, without being overly simple and sim- oversimplified, uh, and just well, bring some of the knowledge that modern historians have into a different audience uh, of readers. Well, Ted, this has been great. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for working on this, and uh, uh, I'll see you at the next conference, and I'll, I'll be first in line to buy that book. Well, thanks very much. Take care. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Fingerprints.com.